0: The story continues we go from uh, last week we're going to continue this week so just to give you a little recap two weeks ago we had the incident of the selling of the birthright and the taking by jacob of the blessings he's then sent to haran by his parents Uh, rivkar fears for her son's life tells him to go to to syria and to uh stay uh, with her brother until esav calms down She convinces her husband to tell uh, her son to go and to find a wife by her brother. So Yaakov, instead of going up to Charan, he stops for 14 years and he goes to the university, to the Yeshiva of Shem and Ever. He's preparing there for exile. We really need to understand what did he need to learn for 14 years in the Yeshiva of Shem and Ever that he didn't learn in the previous 60 years that he was with his father. Who's Yitzchak Avinu, who's the one who went up to heaven, who learned from angels, who learned from Abraham? What was it that he didn't learn that he needed to learn these 14 years? He then goes up to Haran, to Syria, and on the way, he's stopped and robbed by his nephew Eliphaz. We discussed that last week. He's left penniless and shirtless. He arrives in Haran. He meets Rachel by the well. She's his soulmate. The bond is clear. They both feel it. He feels it. He makes a deal with her father. He's going to work seven years in order to marry Rachel, the younger one. We then had the story of the switching of the wives. We have a, we have the period of seven additional years to work for Lea. Or the first years were for Le'ah, The second years for Rachel. Eleven out of the twelve tribes are born. Dinah, their sister is born. Yaakov continues to work for six more years after the fourteen years. The deal with his father-in-law has changed a hundred times, but after which Yaakov emerges very wealthy. Finally, fearing that his father-in-law, Lavan, is going to do something against him, he consults with his wife, and he takes his family and his property, and he's out of there. Lavan is very upset that he left without saying goodbye. He chases after them, but Hashem comes to Lavan in a dream and says, do not touch Yaakov. They meet, there's the accusation of the stolen gods, they were hidden by Rachel. Yaakov does not know that she took these gods and hid them. And he curses the one who took them. And we'll see that really in, uh, in the coming weeks. An agreement is made between Yaakov and his father-in-law. They set up a monument, the first DMZ zone between you know North Korea, South Korea. And uh, neither side is going to cross this uh, this zone, this monument. And it's interesting, later on, when uh, the grandson, great-grandson of Lavan, Bil'am, Harashah, he comes down to Kershman Israel. the donkey pushes him against what? Against this monument, because Bil'am should never have passed this monument. It was a border set between the two sides, and he does. And uh, therefore, he is punished at that point. Yaakov then continues back on his way to the land of Erez Israel. We open this week's Berashah, this week's story. Yaakov is on his way home, his entire caravan filled with animals, his family, his servants, his wealth is coming out and he's coming down and on his way he's going to see Esav, his brother. But he learns that Esav is coming to meet him with 400 soldiers armed and ready for war. His brother's anger, as opposed to diminishing over the last uh, the last twenty twenty uh, no thirty six years, right? Thirty four years, as opposed to diminishing over the last thirty four years, what happens? His brother is still angry at him. He's still angry at him, and now Yaakov is confused. He has to. to he doesn't know what to do. He has to. Uh, he's afraid for his life. He's afraid for his family's life. He's afraid for the lives he might take in a battle he prepares for three ways he's going to pray to hashem send a huge gift and he's going to get ready for war during that night he remembers that he left some little jars across the river he goes back to get those jars and while he's there he meets what appears to be a man some suggest the man looks like a saint others he looks like a devil they get into a wrestling match and it's really not a man at all but it is an angel the angel of esav the samachmem the satan and Yaakov seems to be victorious over this angel. But at the last moment, the angel injures Yaakov. Yaakov, in this defeat, asks the angel his name while he's defeating him in order to let him go. And then he asks for a blessing. We then have the encounter between Yaakov and his brother, where Yaakov bows seven times, presents his brother with more gifts, jewels, they hug. So that's that's the... Uh, the bit of the story. Now let's try to get into the uh, the, the the deep parts. The Zohar Kaddosh begins this week's portion by telling us that from the moment man emerges from the womb he's partnered with the Satan. From the moment of man's initial existence trouble begins. So we have to ask a question. Why do we need trouble? Why is the devil on us from the moment we emerge from the womb? Why is that little guy the second we come out he's there telling us hey do it, do it, do it. Why can't life just be easy sometimes? Why can't it be filled with roses? Why do we have to have trouble day in and day out? Why can't we get a moment of peace? Sometimes we think, our life, I don't have a moment of peace. Why are you doing this to me? So we learned many times that before Hashem created the the created existence, He created us, all Hashem wanted to do was give. Give Give us, give us, give us, give us. But receiving without doing anything in return, results in bread of shame, and we don't want. You you just can't keep receiving without doing something. So what happened was, we had to come to a point where, in order to make ourselves happy, we had to earn in order to receive. The class we're gonna give tonight goes very, very deep, deeper than I think we've ever gone before, into some Kabbalistic ideas. But these Kabbalistic ideas, which we've gone over in the past and in years, even whoever's been coming to my class for years, we've gone over them, but on a, on a very light scale, we're going to get a little deeper this week, and we're going to see how these ideas and the lessons we're going to learn tonight play out in the weeks and the months to come as we go through the entire Torah. So I prepared this class initially on Shabbat. I went through the books, I went through my notes, and then on a fluke, and there's never a fluke because Hashem just does these things, and and He presents these things and ways of meeting people which shouldn't happen, which always helps. So I met in chatting on a, asking question in a text a Rabbi Avraham Berg, who leads a yeshiva in Israel. My kids know him because their kids went to went to the their friends went to. Uh, the yeshiva that this rabbi is the the principal or the head of. And he looked at similar ideas from a perspective he said was based on the Alter Rebbe in the Torah, Torah War. And I said something to him very interesting. I said, you know, it's very interesting that we're looking at things from different perspectives. I really don't look at things from the perspective often of Hasidut. And I'm looking at them from the other side. You're looking from Hasidut. And it's interesting how similar they are. But the truth is his his perspective was so refreshing to me that he sent me his notes, and I um, actually uh, incorporated a lot of his notes into the class tonight. So I'm very grateful. So we begin this week's Perasha. Esav runs to greet his brother. He embraces him. al He fell onto his neck. Whose neck? Each fell onto the other neck. And he kissed him. Vayivku. And they cried. Yaakov now sees his brother after 34 years. And what happens? They hug and they kiss. If you look in the Torah, and if you have a chance to look in the Torah, you'll see on the word Vayishakehu that they kissed on top of the word there are dots. Very strange in the Torah that there are dots on top of this word. So you have to ask, what are the dots for? What are the dots for? Rashi says, and he kissed him. The dots are placed above the letters of the word he kissed him, and there's a difference of opinion expressed in the b'rita. He says, what do these dots suggest? Some say the dots mean that he didn't kiss him with his whole heart. While Rav Shimon Bar Yochai the author of the Zohar, says, It's a well-known halacha that Esav hates Yaakov, but at that moment his pity was real. He was aroused. He kissed him with his whole heart. Now we all heard the Midrash, quoted by Rav that said, Esav came not to kiss Yaakov, but he was the original vampire. He came to bite your neck. I come to bite your neck. He came to bite him on the neck. And this is the reason for the dots. He came to bite him. Miraculously, the Midrash says, Yaakov's neck turned to marble. And the wicked one, Esav, blunted his teeth. So when they cried, why did they cry? Yaakov cried because his neck turned to marble. And it hurt. And Esav cried because he tried to bite the marble and he hurt his teeth. These and these are the words of Elohim Chaim, of a living God. Whenever we see varying opinions, we're told both are true. How could it be true? Either he intended to kiss him because he loves him, or he intended to bite him because he wanted to kill him. What's the meaning that both could be true? That he went to kiss him because he loved him, and he went to kiss him because he wanted to kill him. Furthermore, there are no dots on the word. <coughs> and he hugged him he embraced him what does that mean? it means that Yaakov and Esav the embrace at least was completely completely authentic it was authentic so if the brace was authentic why is the kiss not legitimate? what's the difference? and after they meet what happens? Esav says you know what? I feel terrible you're traveling with your whole entourage let me come along with you and we'll go alongside you and make sure you're protected and Yaakov says no don't worry we'll be fine we'll be fine we don't need you to come he says you go ahead to Seir and we'll catch up because we're going to go very slow and we'll all get together in Seir we'll get together with you in Seir so Esav said to him you know what let me leave you my soldiers as protection. You're going through a possible enemy territory. You don't know what's going to happen. Let me leave you my soldiers and, uh, and, and that'll be it. And, and Yaakov said, no, don't worry. So Esav returns to Seir. Yaakov promises to meet him in Seir. The Midrash asks a question. You look through the whole Torah and you don't find any way that Yaakov went to the mountain of Seir. What does that mean? He promised he's going to come, and he doesn't come. What is he telling him? I'm going to come, not come? It says, in the Messianic era, that's when we say every day in our Tefillah, we say, Only in the messi- Messianic era, we're going to come to the mountain of Seir. So Yaakov is telling, you know what, in this lifetime, not, but eventually, I'm going to come. What's that? What's, what does that mean? For 34 years, Yaakov is living under this death threat from his brother. Now the two brothers seem to have made peace. They reconciled. Esav is willing to travel alongside with Yaakov. He's willing to form this partnership. Yaakov tells Esav, no, don't worry. Yaakov is reluctant to make peace with Esav. If Esav is really making a legitimate offer, why isn't Yaakov jump at the offer? Is it, us, is it us who to blame for the lack of peace between us and Edom and us and Esav? The battle continues. The question is why? It seems there was a definite possibility to make peace. In order to understand the inner meaning of the Yaakov and Esav battle, we need to examine the very fabric of creation itself. The Midrash tells us that creation was a process. Hashem would create many worlds and then destroy them until He created this world. It's interesting, it says before the creation, Hashem created the world so many times. Created, destroyed, created, destroyed. We explained in the past, without going into any depth, because the truth is it becomes very difficult to explain a spiritual concept in words, which actually cover an idea, they form a body. It's very difficult to explain we, we explained in the past that this world is built on the debris, so to speak, of the previous worlds. The world upon which our world is formed, the world on which our form, the foundation of our world, was called Olam HaTohu. We see Bereshit Bara Elokim Eta shamayim ve'et haaretz Tohu. In the beginning, the world was Tohu. The world was tohu, the first world Olam ha-tohu, the world of chaos Chaos from Maxwell Smart This is a world Of much light And few vessels Much light Few vessels Light represents the energy of the world In the Olam ha-tohu In this world of chaos There's a lot of light A lot of energy It's boundless, uncompromising but not enough vessels to hold the light. Imagine I have a glass bottle, which I could fill with water, but instead I pour molten lava into this bottle, what's gonna happen? It shatters. Or imagine I have a vessel that can only expand so much and I fill it up with with rice or whatever it is, and I keep pushing and pushing and pushing, eventually the vessel's gonna shatter. And the contents are gonna go spilling all over the place. The rice is gonna be everywhere. The water is gonna be everywhere. Understanding this, we have to imagine this world of more light than vessel to contain the light. To try to give another mashal, another example we could understand. Let's look at energy as emotion. And an emotion that's so explosive so powerful that the vessel cannot contain it. We hear of a mother whose love is so overwhelming, so all-encompassing, that her child cannot handle it. In essence, she could destroy the vessel if she doesn't control the emotion. Unfortunately, we see people so attached or loving or needing of another person when that when the other person is not around, the emotion becomes so overwhelming that we have a codependent situation, a very unhealthy situation. Love, discipline, beauty—they're wonderful midot. But if they're unbridled, if they cannot be contained by the vessels, they can become harmful and destruction, and destructive. After the destruction of the olam haTohu, what happened is God creates olam haTikun, the world of rectification, on the foundation of this olam haTohu. In contrast to the Olam HaTohu, the Olam HaTikun, the world of rectification is a world of limited light and many vessels. Limited light, many vessels versus unlimited light and not enough vessels. The containers of this world can direct and define the energies, but the light is so much more limited. In the Olam HaTohu, the love is boundless. In the Olam HaTikun, the love is limited. But as a result, we're able to appropriately interact with the other midot. When love interacts with discipline, it is capable of greater potency, even though there's less light, because it fuels the relationship as opposed to overwhelming it. I love you and no one else, it's limited. I love you appropriately. These are the refrains of Olam Hatikun control. The Zohar tells us each world is built on the debris of the previous world, as we mentioned. When the Olam HaTohu overwhelmed the vessels, what happened? You often hear in Kabbalah, the vessels shattered. What does that mean? The vessels shattered. They became a foundation of what we now experience to be our physical world. Everything that is Kadosh, everything that's holy in this world is a product of the balance, we always look for balance, of light and vessels from Olam HaTikun. And everything that is not holy is a function of the destruction of Olam Hato. To explain, within the physical world, there are still remnants of the boundless light and energy of the previous world of Olam HaTohu. The light of the previous world becomes buried in our physical world and must be mined. It must be discovered. It must be collected. I remember a conversation between a rabbi and his students where he strove to convince them that our true task in this world is to mine and gather sparks. That's really what it is. Engaging the physical world in a holy way, in a controlled way, Through self-restraint, through mitzvot, unleashes those sparks into the olam hatikun. We're able to take the sparks that were buried from the previous world and we're able to gather those sparks and put them into the vessels because we have unlimited vessels. And those shards of light can be captured by the containers in this world. What we call history is actually a process of unleashing the sparks of Olam HaTo'hu into the containers of Olam HaTikun. As we redeem more and more of the infinite potential of Olam HaTo'hu, we transform our world into a more godly place where chaos and order exist seamlessly. This is the inner meaning of the Gemara regarding our exile. Only with exile only being sent to the four corners of the earth can we gather sparks from all of these places strange as it seems had the ben hamikdash remained intact and had we never been exiled to the four corners of the world we would have missed the opportunity to collect the sparks i still remember like yesterday flying one year one one time with my brother victor we were flying to Udine which is in the eastern in the northeastern part of Italy what happened is we're on the plane the pilot tells us I'm sorry to tell you there's a general strike in Italy we will be landing in Rome you will not be able to get your luggage there are no taxis there are no buses there are no hotels there are no nothing you will be stranded in Rome's airport until the strike ends this was Friday morning we landed at 6am what are we going to do we ended up going and finding a guy, I heard a guy speaking Hebrew, he found me a taxi driver, who took us to the, the main hotel in Rome, the Excelsior, and I remember I knew the manager, gave him some money, and he gave us the presidential suite for one night. And said, we'll figure out what happens. We ended up going, now we had no clothes, so I went with Victor and we went to find a guy who was gonna make us clothes that day. And what happened is we went to pray that night, And we turned out to be number 9 and 10 in the minyan. Victor turned to be, maybe that's the whole reason we're in Rome. The next day we went to pray in the main synagogue in Rome. And because you can't carry in Rome, we're both wearing our talets through the streets of Rome. As you come around the Vatican area, towards where the main synagogue is, there's dozens and dozens of people selling, uh, they're selling little uh, souvenirs. And as we're walking with our talets through the streets of Rome opposite the Vatican, all the guys are telling us Shabbat Shalom. And only maybe because we got these guys to say Shabbat Shalom, maybe that was the tikkun to pull out something from the streets of Rome. And again, that afternoon, Victor gave a class, and we went to pray with another minyan, where again we were 9 and 10. That night we got word that the strike ended, we were able to leave and take the flight to where we had to go, to Venice, and we were able to go from Venice North. Strange that we got stuck in Rome basically for 48 hours and maybe we got stuck in Rome to do some tikkun in Rome. Hashem puts us in places in different times in order for us to gather sparks to do some mitzvot in order to pull things out that need to be pulled out. There's a pasuk that tells us that, that relates to the coming of Mashiach and the pasuk says I Hashem will hasten it in its time. The Gemara asks a question. If the redemption is to come in its time, then it hasn't been hastened. And if it's hastened, then it hasn't come in its time. So which one is it? Will Hashem hasten it, or will it come in its time? The Gemara answers the question and says, If we're meritorious, it will be hastened. And if not, the redemption will come in its time. Seems the best case is, we're meritorious, it comes quickly. However, it seems according to the Kabbalah that the Mashiach being hastened is not the deepest and truest process. When I consider this, I think about our classes of leaving Egypt. Hashem, it says, had to rescue us in Egypt because we were sinking. We were at the 49th level of tuma, And if we sunk one more level to the 50th, we couldn't get out. So we would take it out quickly And perhaps we were taken out quickly because if we stayed any longer, we wouldn't have gotten out. But perhaps we were leaving too soon. And maybe this is Moshe's argument when he says, send with who you're going to send. The process is not ready. You're not done yet, Hashem. Why are you telling me to go take the people? This is why he's arguing. This is the crux of his argument because perhaps we weren't ready yet to leave Egypt. The process of what we were supposed to do in Egypt wasn't done. And even though the Torah tells us not to go back to Egypt, maybe this is why we had to go back to Egypt. Maybe this is why the Rambam had to go to Egypt. Maybe this is why we had so many years where we had so many millions of people living in Egypt. Again, to bring the sparks that we left behind. There's a famous mashal told by a very, very... uh, A a very wide variety of self help gurus. I've heard it again and again from all these different guys. It's told in various versions. A man sits there and he's watching a butterfly struggling to come out of its cocoon. The butterfly manages to make a small hole, but its body appears too large to get through. After a long struggle, this guy's looking at this butterfly. And he's sitting there for 10, 15 minutes and this guy feels terrible. This poor butterfly, he's having such a hard time getting out. He looks like he's exhausted. He, he, he's absolutely still, maybe he's going to die in there. I, I got to help him out. So what does the guy do? He takes a pair of scissors and he cuts the bottom of the cocoon. And he releases the butterfly out of the cocoon. However, the butterfly's body was very small and wrinkled and it's... Wings were crumpled up. The man continued to watch, hoping that any moment the butterfly would open its wings, would fly away. But nothing happened. The butterfly spent the rest of its brief life dragging around its shrunken body, shriveled wings. It couldn't fly. What the man, out of kindness and eagerness to help, failed to understand was that the tight cocoon, the efforts that the butterfly has to make in order to get out, in order to squeeze through that hole, in order to break out of the cocoon, is the way of training the butterfly and strengthening and bringing color to its wings. It's really more complicated than that, but you get the point. Sometimes rushing the process appears to help, but in the end, it hurts. How is it that Mashiach will come sooner if we're meritorious? It will be because there will be an infusion of divine light that comes from above, it will overwhelm the imperfections of this world. But the problem will be that the world will be in a rectified state, but the inner nature of reality will not have changed. If Mashiach comes in its time, it will be a slower, more painful process, but the world will have undergone a fundamental shift. Instead of being overwhelmed by a divine light, the physical world will go through a transformation and it will reveal the true nature of its inner godly reality. This slower process of in its time is how the boundless sparks of the Olam HaTohu are revealed in our world of Olam HaTikun, ushering in the world of Olam Haba. We take Olam HaTohu, the world of chaos, fix it in the Olam HaTikun, the world of rectification, and through that process bring about the Olam Haba, the future world. The saga of Yaakov and Esav is the representation of the Olam HaTohu and the Olam HaTikun. Esav is the firstborn. He's boundless energy. He's unbridled. He's exceptionally strong. He's already made. He uses his strength, though, in a destructive fashion. Yitzchak Avinu saw Esav, the infinite energy of Olam HaTohu. He thought that it would be Esav who could synthesize this boundless energy with the vessels of Yaakov Avinu. Remember Yitzchak represents the binding. He represents the vessel, the ultimate vessel, the Gevuda. He sees this boundless energy in his son Esav and he says, Unbelievable! He can fuel the energy that will fill the vessels that will fix the world completely. That's why Yitzchak wanted to give the Berachat to Esav. He thought the beracha would allow Esav to complete his mission in this world and bring together a tikkun of the Tohu, of this endless en- energy and light, into the vessels of the Olam tikkun. The problem was that Esav already shattered the vessels. Yitzchak did, un- did not understand this. He did not see it. But Rivka, who grew up in the house of Lavan, and that's why it was crucial to have a Rivkah who grew up in the house of Betuel, who grew up in the house of Levi who could recognize unbridled passion, gone to its extreme, and, and destroying and breaking the, the vessels. What did she do? She understood what had to be done. That Esav had messed up the vessels, and they had to be plan B. So she comes up with plan B. She doesn't merely redress Yaakov to look like Esav in Esav's clothing. What did she do? She had Yaakov take upon himself Esav's role in this world, which in essence really began 50 years prior when Yaakov bought the birthright from his brother. Now it, be, it would be Yaakov who would be tasked with gathering the energies of Olam Hatohu into the vessel of containment. The Gemara asks, what does it mean that Leah had soft eyes? Rav answers that this is a praise for Le'ah. Le'ah would sit at the crossroads. She would hear people say, when they were coming from Canaan up into Haran, up into Syria, Rivka has two sons. Lavan has two daughters. The older daughter will marry the older son. The younger daughter will marry the younger son. The Midrash Tarhuma actually says that Rivka and her brother Lavan had a contract they sent letters to each other agreeing to the match. Esav would marry Leah, Yaakov would marry Rachel. Upon hearing people talk about her potential partner, Leah would ask about the deeds of Esav. The travelers would tell es- Leah that Esav is an evil man. He's engaged in murder, in theft, in rape. There's nothing he hasn't done. His energy is bursting. He does whatever he wants. There's no sense of control. When she asks about the deeds of the younger son, they tell her, oh, he's Ishtam. He's a a good man, a pure man. Yoshev Ohalim. He studies, he's focused. Le'ah becomes so distraught. She's going to marry this Esab who's already messed up, who may have had the energy, but the lack of control has broken all of his vessels. She cried and she prayed until her eyelashes fell out. Let's remember that Yaakov Avinu never criticizes his children during his lifetime. He only criticizes his children on his deathbed. And we say, how is it possible that Yaakov doesn't take them and give them a spanking after they do the crazy things they do? Why doesn't he stop his kids? What's he afraid of? And the rabbis tell us that Yaakov was worried that his children, especially the children, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, especially those children, Yehuda, those children, they were the children of Leah. And Leah, in reality, was the soulmate of Esav. She's the other half of Esav's soul. So he's worried that those children, in essence, are really not his own, but the children of Esav in some spiritual way. And he was worried that if he yells at his kids, they're going to say, See ya, Dad, we're going to live with Uncle Esav. Now let's think about the quality that relates to the unbridled energy. And where we see it, or at least from Yaakov's perspective, we're going to see next week Shimon and Levi. They go into the city of Shechem. Two young men, teens, and they literally murder every single person in the city. What better proof to Yaakov is there that these two sons are more connected to the uncontrolled and unbridled energy of his brother by wiping out a city? Why is Le'ah so distraught about marrying Esav? Did she not have the ability to say, no, I won't marry him? The Pasuk in in, in Malachi, it talks about Esav and it says, Esav, the nation is Senu'ah, is hated. In this week's Perashah, we also see that someone is called Senua, hated. Who's called hated? Le'ah. Why are Esav and Le'a both called Senua, hated? Let's consider, why, let's remember, you think Yaakov really hated his wife? And loved Rachel, hated? What does it mean? We have to know that we generally hate that which we don't understand. We hate that which can't be contained by our minds. We hate that which doesn't make sense to us. The Olam HaTohu is beyond human comprehension. The light is too infinite for our finite minds, our vessels to contain. The souls of Esav and Leah both originate from Olam HaTohu. This is why there's a natural partnership between them. Yaakov and Rachel are both natural partners from the Olam HaTikun. This explains that why in the same pasuk that it talks about Le'ah having tender eyes, Rachel, Imenu, is described as being beautiful. Beautiful features, beautiful complexion. Where Le'ah is hated, Rachel is loved. How could we say, Chas v'shalom, that Yaakov hated Le'ah, loved Rachel? But rather, Yaakov and Rachel had a common soul. They understood one another. Her light could be contained by his vessels. Le'ah excused a more powerful light. It cannot be contained by Yaakov's vessels. Thus she is called Senua, hated. The difference between Le'ah and Esav is that while the vessel of Esav shattered, the vessels of Le'ah remained intact. Le'ah is asking anyone who knows Esav, how is he managing? She's so depressed to find out that he was broken. She knew that she could not share a life with him. The Midrash tells us about a fascinating conversation that takes place between Lea and Ya'akov on the morning after the wedding. Ya'akov thought he was with Rachel. He wakes up in the morning and he sees, Oh my gosh, it's Lea! That's who he spent the night with. Ya'akov says to Lea, I see you and your father are alike. Just as your father's a liar, you're a liar. Lea responds, If my father and me, if we're both liars, the only one we learned it from, was you. You, Yaakov, deceived Yitzchak into giving you the bracha, saying you were Esav. The Midrash is hard to understand. It's true that Yaakov deceived Yitzchak in some way. But why does that give license to Le'ah to trick Yaakov? What does one have to do with the other? The Rabbis tell us that Le'ah was answering Yaakov's question. She says to Yaakov, when you lied to your father, and your father said, Who are you? And you said, "Anochi Esav. I am Esav. You made me Le'ah into your wife. You didn't just dress up in Esav's clothing. You took on a part of his mission in his life. You took the part of his soul that's connected to me. Your mother Rivka understood that Esav's vessels had shattered. And now either the energy of Yitzchak is going to be lost Or Esav is going to be overwhelmed by Yitzchak's divine light. Either way, it wasn't going to work for Esav to get the blessing. And you, Yaakov, she brought in to not take the blessings, but to take the role of Esav in this world. Though the part of your soul that originates from from Olam Hatikun is deeply connected to Rachel, the Esav aspect of your soul is connected to me. Leah says to him, I didn't deceive you. Our marriage is a product of a new reality. A reality where you are no longer a twin, but you have a dual identity. And we're going to see it later because there's Yaakov, who's married to Rachel, and Yisrael, who is really married to Le'a. So within Yaakov, we see this dual reality. Understanding this dual identity of Yaakov gives us deeper insight into his life. After running away from Esav, the first thing Yaakov does is spend 14 years learning in Yeshivat Shem Ever. I said, what does he need to spend 14 more years learning before he goes to work? Chazal tell us that in the 14 years Yaakov does not sleep. Instead, he spends every moment learning. What's he learning that he doesn't even sleep? That he has to stop his life in order to go learn. What could Yaakov be so consumed by for 14 straight years? Yaakov learned Torah from his father Yitzchak. He was at such a level. But we explained before, and this is why I suggested that I never thought that Yitzchak went to Yeshivat Shem Ever. The Torah of Shem and Ever is the Torah in, of engaging in the world. The world beyond Eretz Yisrael. The 14 years Yaakov immersed himself in pure Olam HaTikun, so that his vessels would be strong enough to contain the sparks of Olam HaTohu. This was the lesson of how to work in Galut and gather the sparks that Yaakov had to learn in Yeshivat Shem We see the first time Yaakov goes to sleep is when he leaves the yeshiva. He goes into the world. And in his very first sleep, Yaakov has this crazy dream. The angels of Eretz Yisrael are leaving him, going up to Shamayim, while the angels of Chutz Aretz are coming down to escort him to the outside world. Yaakov is now engaging in his second identity, that of Esav. And so it's appropriate from here on out that the Malachim of Eretz Israel remain behind, and he takes the Malachim of his second identity out with him to Levan. If Yaakov is to truly engage the outside world, he has to come with no prior possessions. Yitzchak had given Yaakov wealth in order to find a wife, but Yaakov's mission is to gather the sparks of this world. As long as Yaakov is wealthy, he's not going to have an urgent need to confront the world around him. Eliphaz is dispatched by Esav to kill Yaakov. He confronts Yaakov. Yaakov then willingly gives him everything so he should be a poor man considered dead. If Yaakov had maintained his wealth, there would be no reason to work for Lavan for seven years and seven more years and six more years. Therefore, no opportunity for Yaakov Avinu to gather the sparks that were left behind in Haran. So the losing of his wealth and the forcing to work all those years was part of a divine plan. So he's left with no possessions. He's escorted by Malachim, by angels from Chutz La'aretz. He journeys to Haran. Haran, Haran what does it mean? Wrath. It's an appropriate name for Yaakov's destination. Rashi explains that haran is the focus of Hashem's wrath in this world. Haran is a representation of the olam Hato. It's the place that, recom- that, that represents the concealment of the light, the infinite light that was shattered and buried into this haran, this anger. So let us ask a question. Hashem creates us as perfect souls Our perfect soul is in Shamayim What is the point of taking a perfect soul from Shamayim And bringing him down to earth What can it gain by engaging a physical existence The Rabbis explained The soul might be perfect But it has no no toldot Toldot could be deeds Toldot could be children In descending to this world, the soul can express itself in a physical dimension, bring godliness down to the world. And this is the inner meaning of toldot, deeds, children, what we can do in this physical world. Our soul brings down other souls into this world. Yaakov arrives in Haran with nothing but his own wholesomeness, tamimaya. He left with wives, children, and wealth. Yaakov amasses his fortune through what? Everything he has is based on sheep. Sheep are generally docile creatures. They're representative of humility and nullification. The world is a liar in the sense that it claims to be its own source, but in truth represents the most infinite godly light. This is why Lavan himself is called Ramai, a liar. What does Yaakov do? He engages Lavan of Haran. Lavan the liar, of Haran the wrath. And through his humility, engaging in sheep, he reduces his ego. He brings Haran to its necessary tikkun. Yaakov is clearly successful. As Lavan's sons say, Yaakov has taken all that belongs to our father, and from our father's possessions, he's created all of his wealth. With nothing left to rectify, Hashem tells Yaakov, you've done it. You've finished your job in Haran. Go back to the land of your forefathers. Go back to your birthplace. I will be with you. Hashem is saying, now that the olam HaTohu has expressed its true nature, and has been contained by Yaakov's olam hatikun, there's no reason for him to remain in Chutzlaharetz. In fact, by the time Yaakov is done, even Rachel and Leah sense there's no longer left anything to be mined in the house of Lavan. What do they say to Yaakov when he comes to them? He says to them, I think we should go home. They agree. They said there's no longer a portion or inheritance for us in our father's house. Lavan, I mean Yaakov appears has done his job, but there's one aspect of Lavan that not yet has been rectified. As we mentioned earlier, in order for the Olam HaTikhu to come to its full tikkun, it can't be overwhelmed by divine light. It has to go through the process little by little, slowly, by stages, through honesty, through doing the right thing, through doing the right thing even when you're pressed that the other guy's doing the wrong. Rachel Imenu, like Yaakov, represents the Olam Hatikun. She's Yaakov's natural soulmate. She wants to reveal the divine light of her father, Lavan. Whereas Yaakov painstakingly goes through 20 years, this slow process, day by day, to reveal the inner beauty, the inner beauty of Lavan. Rachel is, what does she do? She overwhelms Lavan by taking his teraphim. She takes his household idols with her. This is what Rashi means when he quotes the Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah. He says that Rachel wanted to stop her father from further Avodah Zarah. So she confiscated his teraphim, his little idols, before departing Haran. In contrast to Yaakov, who allows Mashiach to come Be'ito in its time, Rachel, what does she want to do? Achishena. She wants to hasten it by taking away the household idols of Lavan. While it appeared that the Olam Hato'hu yielded all of its sparks, in truth it was overwhelmed at the last minute by the divine light of Rachel, and therefore what happens? Lavan comes chasing Yaakov. Here we encounter a fascinating narrative from Lavan. Lavan says to Yaakov, What have you done that you hid from me? hid from me. More than anything, the Olam HaTohu wants to be understood. The Olam HaTohu alone knows its boundless energy, and it cannot understand why nothing can contain it. Though externally, it may seem that Lavan battles with Yaakov, the secret of Lavan is that he wants nothing more than to be defeated. Nothing would make him happier than for Yaakov to mine his sparks and allow his infinite light to be expressed. So when Rachel steals his household idols, she hastens the Geula. Lavan is justifiably frustrated with Yaakov. However, Yaakov has no idea. He didn't know that Rachel did that. He protests, he claims his innocence. Yaakov says, I spent 22 years teaching Lavan humility, revealing his inner nature. He didn't steal anything. He didn't want to hasten. He wanted it to come properly. He only left because his work was complete. And to stay longer means there would be the potential of losing the family that he gained. But Yaakov did not know of the Avodah of Rachel. He didn't know what his wife did, that she took the teraphim. Lavan searches for the teraphim unsuccessfully because Rachel hid them. Yaakov grows annoyed. From Yaakov's perspective, the utensils of the house of Lavan contain no hidden idols. He has not tried to hasten the Mashiach. He allowed the process to unfold. In his own words, what does he say? I was in the field day when the heat consumed me and night when the frost was there and I never slept. Yaakov insists he put in 14 years of sleepless immersion in the yeshiva. In the same way he put in 20 years of immersion into the house of Lavan to liberate those sparks. It's not you Lavan who gave me my wealth but it was the nullification before Hashem that brought me success. Lavan doesn't accept Yaakov's argument. He knows the truth. He can feel it. He's not gone through a complete transformation. Lavan does not accept that Yaakov actually acquired daughters sons wealth he maintains that it still belongs to him Lavan the sparks of Olam Hato who says Lavan haven't been liberated your mission in Haran is not complete it may seem on the outside that there's redemption but in truth it was hastened and with this Lavan and Yaakov form a covenant they part ways but the work is not finished and I think this is the secret of the Pesukim that tell us Lavan returned to his place And I think perhaps this is why we had to spend 2,000 years in Syria. We had to mine those sparks that were left over from Yaakov. This is the process. We mine the sparks through a process. Having completed this time by Lavan, Yaakov now feels prepared to confront Esav. I've done it. I've mined the sparks. I've taken the role of Esav. Yaakov's time in Haran, mining the sparks of Olam Hato, is all a preparation to unite with Esav. In Haran, Yaakov experienced the union. He was able to take the light and put it into the vessels. Now a reunion with his brother Esav will bring Mashiach, the ultimate rectification to our world. Indeed, the Zohar Kadosh points out that as opposed to when Yaakov left Canaan and dreamt that the Malachim of Eretz Yisrael left him now re-entering Yaakov is wide awake the Malachim of Chutzla Arez come with him into Eretz Yisrael the outside world made up of the destruction of Olamato, is now under the dominion of Yaakov could be brought into Kedushah of Eretz Yisrael Yaakov sends angels Rashi explains Malachim Mamash what does it mean? the Rabbi suggests that Yaakov sent the actuality of angels to Esav but kept their higher spiritual essence with him the mission of Yaakov is to be able to gather the infinite night light from the finite. Even a malach has some form. Yaakov is able to distinguish between the higher spiritual essence and the limited physical reality of an angel. The message that Yaakov is sending Esav is clear. Yaakov is saying, I mastered the art of holding on to the Kedushah while engaging the physical. Therefore Esav is no longer a threat to me. He further says this when he says, Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan. I did the 613 mitzvot. The message Yaakov is saying, what does he care if he did mitzvot? He's saying, while I adapted your soul and engaged Lavan in Haran, my vessels remain intact. I didn't shatter like you. I did the job. Utilizing the 613 mitzvot, I was able to harness the sparks of olam ha The mitzvot don't remove us from the world. The Torah of Ever taught me how to contain the infinite sparks. Having conquered the olam ha-tohu, Yaakov is not expecting Esav to oppose him anymore. The prospect that the work is not yet complete, that To and tikkun have not yet been synthesized, frightens Yaakov. In response, we find Yaakov does three things. He prays to Hashem. He sends gifts to Esav. He prepares for war. All these three things represent three different aspects of confronting the physical world. We pray. We recognize we can't do it on our own. This is an expression of humility. It's necessary to nullify the olam hatahu before Hashem. We send gifts. We're willing to give what we have, our physical resources in the physical world, and we prepare for war. We know engaging that the world in the world around us brings us into contact with negative influences that derail us from the mission we need to be prepared for the inevitable conflict which will arise so we could emerge victorious the Gemara tells us that during the night Yaakov crossed over the stream together with his family but he forgot pachim ketanim small earthenware jugs what's he going for? the word levador can also be read lekador meaning he went for his jug She tells us that it was the time that Yaakov was attacked by the Malach of Esav. This is the truest test of his relationship with the physical world. He's returning the Pachim Ketanim. Why? Because of his attachment to the physical world or because he could find godliness in the smallest of containers to contain the light. It's important to point out that Yaakov does not do battle with Esav himself. Whereas Yaakov sends the mamash of his angels to Esav, Esav sends the spirit to do battle with Yaakov. The essence of Yaakov, challenge, the essence of Esav, the angel of Esav, challenges Yaakov's authenticity. Have you, Yaakov, really taken on the role of Esav? Do you embody his spirit? Can you engage the sparks of Olam Hatohu? Are your vessels shattered as well? So Yaakov's left with him. They battle all night, they come to dawn. He perceives he can't overcome him, the angel. He strikes the socket of his hip. So Yaakov's hip socket was dislocated. Rabbi Yahshua ben Levi said, This teaches us that they raise the dust, the avak, of their feet up to the heavenly throne. We have to understand, obviously this was not a simple physical fight. The dust of the world, the physical reality is ascending to the kiseh hakavod. Yaakov spends the night a reference to the darkness of the physical world he maintains that it is he and not Esav who will bring the world to its ultimate rectification by rectifying the sparks of Olam Hato until the dawn breaks. This is a reference to the time of Mashiach when the truth of Hashem's oneness becomes apparent. With the breaking of dawn, Yaakov theorizes that perhaps he's done it. I've defeated the the, the angel of Esav. I'm bringing Mashiach. It's all over. It's done. The Shelah Kadosh explains why does he ask the angel his name? Because the angel's name is Samachmem El Samael. Samach Samachmem and then El El is God. What does it mean? It says that the angel of, of Satan, the angel of Esab will be slaughtered at the time of Mashiach. What does that mean? We're gonna separate the Samachmem from the El. So Yaakov is asking his name. Has your El, has your godliness be been separated? Has it been cut off from you? Are we done? Are we done? Have I succeeded in taking the sparks of Ulam HaTohu? What does the angel do? He sees he can't win. He touches him. He injures him in the socket of his hip. The Ramban explains that hitting him in the Gid HaNasheh is an expression of the idea, unbelievable, that the fight will continue on throughout the generations. Yaakov has done what he could do. He was the one to do the first battle. He set the path for his children to complete the victory. But the, for the Olam Hato to fully transform, it needs to go through this slow process. Indeed, it's going to require all of human history. Just to end with this. The angel says, no longer is your name going to be Yaakov. Rather, Yisrael is going to be your name. For you strove with the divine and with men you prevailed. Yaakov refuses to relinquish his hold on the Malach of Esav. He knows the fight's going to continue throughout Kalaz Yisrael's history. He wants a blessing. It takes a guy like Yaakov to ask the devil to bless him. It's interesting that the rabbis debate which of Yaakov's blessings he utilized and which he saves for his children. Also, Yaakov is no longer called... I mean, Abraham, when his name is changed, you're never allowed to call him Abraham anymore. His name was Avrah, now it's Abraham. But Yaakov is both Yaakov and Yisrael. Yaakov is so named because he expresses... Because he expresses the heel of Esav. He spends his life dealing with the lowest aspects of the physical world. On the other hand, Yisrael strove with both the divine and with men. He does not remain a Yoshev o Halim. He's taking on Esav's soul in quest in both human and divine form. He can no longer be content living a sublime life. He has to redeem the spiritual from the physical. Though Yaakov defeats the Malach of Esav, he cannot be named for victory. We don't give him the name victory. He's still doing the battle. With all this in mind, we could return to the original question. Yaakov and Esav, they meet, they embrace, they kiss. Everyone agrees that embrace is, is authentic, but the kiss is subject to debate. Embrace represents closeness, but a kiss represents intimacy and oneness. Yaakov already achieved a closeness with Esav. In his own person, he holds both souls, but those souls have not yet merged into one. To say that Esav and Yaakov kissed authentically is untenable. It had to be an attempt on Yaakov's life that Esav was making by Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, what does he say? It's a halakha that Esav hates Yaakov. To say something's a halakha, it says it's the way of the world. Halakha represents reality. It says, but Ramban says, we have to understand, we have two wills, an external and an internal. On an external level, Esav hates Yaakov, but on an internal level, the Olam is waiting to be understood by the Olam Tikun. Its most inner desire is to give Yaakov a kiss. Take me, help me, bring me back. To become one with Olam HaTikun. This is what's going to happen in the days of Mashiach. These are the words of the author of the Zohar. Rav Shimon Bar saw on the spiritual level, the internal level, the kiss of Yaakov and Esav, as it truly was. It's not just internal, external chaos. He says, but the internal desire for harmony, not merely in the context of this saga, but through the lens of the entire history until Mashiach. It's clear to us now why Yaakov declines to join Esav on his journey. Both Lavan and, Malach, and the Malach of Esav make it clear to Yaakov that the divine light of Mashiach should not overwhelm the Olam ato, but instead the process of transformation needs to play out over the course of history. So Yaakov explains to Esav, the tender children, the young flocks, the young cattle, they have to go through the process. Though a truce has been called, peace has not been made. That can only happen when the chaos of Tchol is contained by the vessels of Tikun. As the Midrash said, we say every day, Yaakov will only meet Esav on Har Seir in the days of Mashiach. Until then, the battle continues. We're going to see this scene play out next week with Dina and Shechem and the Gilgulim of Dina and Shechem. In the coming weeks, as Yosef goes to Egypt, We eventually emerge from Egypt. There's a process. And each of us exists in this world in this process. And how do we contribute to gather sparks? We nullify the I, we nullify the ego, we minimize the ego, we fulfill the Mitzvot, we discover, we mine, and we gather the sparks. This is really our job. It's a job of taking the world that we live in that was built on the previous world and gathering and mining all those sparks. I have a prayer that we should all complete our job. We should bring Mashiach b'mirabi ha'minu.